Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Our upcoming class at uh, Plowshares Bible Institute is called Apologetics. And I wanted to explain a little bit about this in the history of the English language. You know, we have the word apology, but initially that meant that uh, a defense of something. And it was one of the areas that I focused on in my graduate school. But unfortunately, the apologetics that I studied, the understanding was uh, working within the framework of our own modern period, our own modern culture. And I think that a defense of Christianity is really larger than that. It's going to challenge the root assumptions of the world that we live in. And what I'd like to do today, you know, the word apology or apologetics, it's actually connected originally to trials. And there's three famous trials in the history of the world where we see an apology given. And so I want to take the trial of Socrates, we'll just do it briefly, in ancient Greece, the trial of Jesus in Jerusalem, and then the trial of Paul before Agrippa. And we're going to see three apologies presented, three apologetics. And these are the three most famous legal defenses, I think, in Western history. And they're really the source. I think we can see the source of the form of defense that we are to be about as Christians. And I think that we can get at a true biblical apologetic, but I think even a true biblical theology as we compare these three. So let's start with the trial of Socrates in 399 BC. They accused Socrates of two things, of impiety against the pantheon of the gods. They said, oh, Socrates is an atheist. And they accused him of corruption of the youth of the city-state. And really, his argument is aimed at proving, first of all, that he's a good citizen, that he's a worshiper of the gods. In fact, the last thing he'll do before he dies, you know, he drinks the hemlock because he fails in his trial, is to offer a cock to the god Ascapolis. Socrates' main defense, he said, well, I've never claimed to be corrupting anybody or to know anybody. In fact, I went to the Oracle of Delphi and she says that, you know, the goddess says that you're the wisest man. He said, well, I don't know what that means because he says, I'm ignorant. That's actually the nature of his wisdom. He says, I'm smart enough to know I don't know anything. And Socrates says that the poets really don't understand their poetry. He says the prophets, the seers, they really don't know what they're talking about that the craftsmen and the people that they all had claimed so much knowledge of things which in fact they had none and he said I'm wiser than they are because I know I don't have any he says I wasn't corrupting anybody I was just going around asking to find somebody that was wiser than I am and in searching for a man wiser he said he earned the reputation of being a kind of social gadfly in the city of Athens and he had a bad reputation among the powerful personages and he said I kept the laws of the city I never did anything illegal they say well you're guilty and he he really has a choice he can be 
thrown out of the city or he can accept death and drink poison. And of course, rather than be banished from the city, he chooses to drink the, the hemlock. And this is important because Socrates clung to the city, the very reason for his suicide. He couldn't imagine a world beyond the city gates. And Socrates died secure in his citizenship in Athens. Of course, this is in contrast to the trial of Jesus. Jesus is going to die outside the city gates. And he's going to challenge the city. And he's going to challenge the rulers of the city. If you look at John and John 19, we see the trial of Jesus that really there's no judgment ever formally declared against Jesus. In fact, there's a little bit of ambiguity in the trial of Jesus. Pilate is refusing to be the judge in any formal sense, and he actually refuses to pronounce judgment. You remember his wife warned him to have nothing to do with this man, and he washes his hands publicly of the affair, and he tries to turn it over to the Jews and say, well, you do what you want with him. Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no fault in the man. Of course, this is more of a taunt on his part because they have no power legally to crucify Jesus. They're forbidden by Roman law to capital cases, to try capital cases. And of course, their own law forbids crucifixion. And so Pilate says, there is no case against the man, and he cannot pass judgment, really. And actually, it, it's questionable whether there's even a trial. And so when the Jews begin to yell, crucify him, Pilate says, there's no case. He says this two times. And the Jewish leaders suggest that Jesus may have broken Roman law, and he's broken Jewish law by proclaiming to be the Son of God. And then the Jews, you know, the, the crowd, the religious leader, they turn up the heat on him a little bit. He becomes even more afraid, John tells us, because they say, well, you're no friend of Caesar if you let this man go. And so he has Jesus paraded out, you remember, in a royal purple robes, a kind of mock crown of thorns. And he says, behold, the man. And he's been beaten, Jesus has been beaten, he's bleeding, and it may be, some think, that he's actually trying to reduce Jesus' importance in, in the estimate of the crowd, maybe to save his life because of the humiliation he's undergoing. But of course it's Pilate's own life that has now slid into the scale of judgment. The Jews said, he claimed to be the son of God and Caesar's own claim, you know, throughout the trial, he's taken claims, prince of peace, Lord even, but Caesar would only claim. And so they're saying, well, this is what he said and this is what Caesar claims and you've got to choose Pilate. And so Pilate's attempt to uh, take away all of his dignity to make a kind of mock king of him. Maybe it's a trick on his part, but it doesn't work. And so when he returns to the praetorium, you know, there's this long conversation between Jesus and Pilate. And he questions Jesus. He says, don't you understand that I am the one with the power in this situation? I can do with you what I want. And of course, the question behind the question is, well, wait a minute, who's calling the shots here? And Jesus says, you have no power over me whatsoever that is not given to you from the very source from whence my kingdom comes. 
And your powerlessness is evident, I think, is what Jesus is saying. He says, the one who delivered me here to you bears more guilt. And so Pilate's effort not to pass judgment, Jesus passes judgment several times in this. But his judgment concerns the whole system, the system of human law. Jesus thrusts the viewpoint of the divine. I think we have to see that. And I think this is the lesson. You know, what I'm trying to do here in this, just telling this story is, how does Christianity, how does Christian theology, how does our Christian understanding fit into the realm of the city-state, into the realm of law, into the realm of the nation? I think that the trial of Jesus is a place to see how these things fit together. Certainly those who have delivered me to you, Jesus says, are worse off according to eternal judgment. But Pilate, your claims to power are illegitimate. And beyond that, all claims that follow in your stead are thrown into question. I think that's the implication. And when Pilate asks if Jesus is king, Jesus replies, well, you're the one that has said I'm a king. And actually every move that Pilate makes, you know, he's going to dress him in purple robes, tack up the sign, king of the Jews on the cross. Jesus says that my kingdom is not from this world. Now, we, I think we can misunderstand this. The tradition surrounding this statement from Augustine and Aquinas is not that Jesus is, is establishing his kingdom elsewhere, but he's establishing his kingdom by a different mode than this world's kingdoms. Jesus is going to say, my kingdom is here among you. But this kingdom has its origins. It's a, from heaven. The incarnation and this very moment in the trial are a witness to the kind of kingdom that Jesus establishes. And so their brief exchange leaves Pilate in a panic. He's actually in a worse situation than he was. And then the Jews pull their trump card. He said, if, if you release him, you're no friend of Caesar. And Pilate says, well, I thought he was your king. And they say, we have no king but Caesar. Think of this. These are Jews who are looking for a messianic king and they swear allegiance to Caesar over the Messiah right there. They're really committing a kind of blasphemy. And so Jesus stands robed in the royal purple with the crown and the one who's representing Caesar is now threatened with the power of Caesar and Pilate says, well, look at the man. Look at your king. And that is that Pilate, Caesar's representative, is really saying, and we get this from the, the sign that he puts on the cross, that Jesus is, in fact, a kind of sovereign. And that's when they cry, you know, we have no king. And Pilate, he pushes it. Shall I crucify your king? And they say, crucify him. Crucify him. And so he puts on the cross in three languages the king of the Jews. And they come to him and say, don't you mean to say that he claimed to be the king of the Jews? Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. King of the Jews. Now there's an unusual scene in the, the a, a kind of ambiguity in the trial, last thing I'll touch on here. But Jesus is brought out and it says he sat down on the seat of judgment. And the question is, who's in the seat of judgment? Literally in the text. 
In an alternative reading, it says, He led Jesus out and set him on the judge's bench. That is, Jesus is seated on the judge's bench by Pilate. And some think that Pilate is actually saying, I'm not the judge, he's the judge. And in this reading, we get affirmation of this in later textual history. That Pilate is not simply refusing to judge, but he's saying that Jesus is the rightful judge. And Pilate has not set himself in the judgment seat. And he said this over and over again, I can't judge. And he hands him over to be judged elsewhere. And so the one who has been placed in judgment, the king of the Jews, the true sovereign, the one who pronounces judgment on both Pilate and the Jews, is handed over in lieu of any real judgment. And so Pilate's state of mind, you know, even apart from this reading, he, he's filled with doubt and he concludes, in fact, that Jesus seems to be the king. The apocryphal gospel of Peter puts it this way. He put on him a purple robe and made him sit upon the seat of judgment, saying, giving righteous judgment, thou king of Israel. I don't know if this is a correct reading, but in both Mark and Matthew, also Pilate does not declare a judgment. The point is, this stands in contrast. Jesus is crucified, not according to the law, but over and against the law. He's banished from the city. He's crucified outside the city. And of course, Jesus is the judge over the city. There is a danger in misreading the trial of Jesus. Theologically, there's a danger. There's two types of interpretive frames that have put on the, been put on the trial. And one theology, actually with Martin Luther, a theology built on the notion that Jesus is legally sentenced to death and that it's by a legal judgment, a righteous judgment, if this is our understanding, we cannot discriminate between the intent of Pilate, the Jews, and Christ. And in fact, I'm afraid we can't really distinguish between what's good and evil in this trial. You know, whose side are we on? In this understanding, Roman law and God's law are united to bring about the death of Jesus. And God is simply working out his providential intent to punish Jesus under the law so that he might be punished for all. This would be penal substitution. And so Rome with its God Caesar is not being judged, but Rome's law and justice, they're perfectly adequate for God's purposes. That would be a reading. That is the, the common Protestant reading. And after all, you know, Rome and the church will unite under Constantine and this Constantinian Christianity imagines that human law Human justice, human government, human reason are all adequate for God's purposes. And in this understanding, the economy of salvation works within the economy of human cultures and nations. So that salvation comes through Constantinian Rome. Or salvation comes through Christian America. Or it comes through the nation state. As Dante described Jesus' trial. It was under a lawful procedure about a just punishment. Therefore, one cannot pronounce its proceedings as evil. Luther, as representative of this understanding, imagines, you know, Pilate almost sets him free. And Luther says, well, that's uh, a temptation posed by Satan. 
He explains that Pilate's wife's dream, uh, you know, to have nothing to do, it's a d demon that is intervening and seeking to impede the crucifixion. And that is to halt the trial or prevent the death of Jesus would be to subvert the divine economy of salvation. And so in this understanding, Pilate, Judas, the Jews, the Romans, they're all part of God's effort to have Jesus punished. And rather than seeing the trial of Jesus as a clash of powers, this reading presumes that God is the puppet master pulling the strings and human law is the instrument he employs. Good and evil are not really opposed to one another as all things, you know, to misquote Paul, all things are working together for good. And in this understanding God's sovereign purposes, they're always being worked out, regardless of the particulars of the circumstance. The facts of history, well that, that, that's irrelevant because whatever's happening, God's doing. All of history is a revelation. All of human law is good. Every government is good. This, by the way, in another trial, it's not a major trial, but a different trial, of Adolf Eichmann on trial in Jerusalem for playing a key role in the Holocaust, he uses a Lutheran defense. That he was just a bureaucrat. He's using a Socratic defense. I'm just obeying the laws. And whatever the law is, we have to obey the law, and that's all I did. And when pronounced guilty, you know, they hang Eichmann in Jerusalem. He said, I had to obey the rules of my flag. Law is law, is the idea. And in this very German Lutheran version of theology, even Jesus' death will be explained according to this absolute standard of the law. He died to fulfill the law. He died for the law. He didn't die to challenge the law. He didn't die to overcome the human world. He didn't die to, in some way, give us an alternative kingdom. And the divine economy is not an intervention into what appears to be unmitigated evil. Hitler is hailed by German Christians as God's spokesman. He is the Messiah. He is the man of the hour. In other words, their theology prepared them to accept complete evil. And I'm afraid that we're in a very similar situation today, in which we would accept pure evil under the name of God. But salvation is being worked out not according to human law, codified human standards, but given the theological understanding that human law and God's law are one, there is no end of divinely sanctioned evil. Make no mistake, the Hitlers of the world arise appealing to God. And so the alternative frame in theology is to see human economy, human government, human notions of law and justice, human notions of reason as coming into conflict with the economy of salvation. And I think we can see that in the trial of Jesus. If ever there were a point in history where two worlds, two notions of truth, two notions of justice stood opposed, it is in the trial of Jesus. And it's this understanding. There are you know, pivotal or significant events in history which pertain to eternity. This must be one of them. Christ is confronting evil in the form of Pilate. Rome's representative. 
He's confronting evil in the form of the leading Jews, representing Jewish law and religion, maybe misrepresenting. And all of these forces unite in the death of Jesus. They're evil. They're not good. So to call this good is to call what is evil good. This is not the law of God, but it is the culmination of the outworking of the law of sin and death. Christ has not come to fulfill the law of sin and death, but to expose it for an abomination. And this law is not just human desire. It is human kingdoms. It's the human world. Under this law, man passes judgment on God incarnate according to the laws of the land, according to their religion, according to their moral sensibility. They put Jesus to death in all good conscience. And of course, the point of the trial is to overturn human judgments, human judgments of truth, the nature of God's kingdom, you know, sovereignty, justice, are an alternative kingdom. And so in the trial, two kingdoms are clashing, two notions of sovereignty, two notions of truth, and Pilate's question, what is truth? Well, of course, we know the answer to that. Pilate is a good Greek in this sense. He would say, well, there is no truth. But in making a defense of Christianity, in doing an apologetic, the truth comes to devolve down to the singular thing. What do you do with Jesus? Do you hand him over? Pilate, I think, discerned that Jesus was the truth. I think his misdirected question, it's really not what is truth, but who is the truth? And the truth stood right before him. And so Jesus literally dies outside the city. Jesus stands in judgment of the city at the same time that he witnesses to truth beyond the city. The kingdom of God doesn't fit into the kingdom of man. It's not according to the laws of the city. And I think we get this in Paul's defense. This will be the last trial. Look at Acts 26. In his defense before Agrippa, Paul depicts his own religion and belief system is really on trial with Paul. His own adherence to the law. He says, I was a Pharisee. I was a good Jew. I obeyed the law. And yet because of this, I was driven to persecute Christians. Look at 26.9. So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also they were being put to death. When they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all of the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Paul's saying two things here. He was saying I was a good Jew and I was persecuting Christians and I was doing this in good conscience. And so this pursuit of violence, the death of Christians, it's not simply Paul's story. I think we can do injustice to the trial of Jesus, the trial of Paul, because in both of them what we're recognizing is the nature of Christianity. It is the culmination of the story you know, Paul is a true Pharisee, just as Pilate is a true Roman. He's not apologizing for his Pharisaical commitments. 
He's demonstrating to Agrippa that he once would stand like Agrippa, who would use the world's law, the world's judgment, to arrest and kill Paul, just as they've arrested and killed Jesus. You're persecuting me, Jesus says to Paul on the road to Damascus. In other words, Paul is doing what Pilate did. Paul is doing what Agrippa would do. Paul, as a good Jew, is doing what Rome would do. And Paul's pharisaical world was not a platform he would save or that would accommodate what Christianity is about. It was a world that needed exposure. In other words, Paul is going to say, we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone walked according to the course of Paul's previous world, thinking they served God while subject to the powers of the world, the principalities and powers, he'll call them, the prince of the power of the air. This isn't simply Paul's personal problem. His story contains the universal passage. I believe we're all to experience something like Paul experienced on the road to Damascus. You know, when that light came and he was blinded by it. He said, I heard a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In other words, we're either with Pilate, we're with Agrippa, we're with Herod, we're with Caesar, or we're with Jesus. You can't do both. The one kingdom stands over and against the other kingdom. I think that's a permanent condition. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. That's interesting. That is that Paul is persecuting Jesus in persecuting the church. And so the drama of Paul's conversion, I think, is one we tend to locate, you know, simply in a personal conversion. But Paul is relinquishing one world order for another world. If he would stick to being a Pharisee, if he would kick against the goads, is the way Jesus puts it, you're kicking against the truth. To stick to this failing order would amount to a commitment to blindness, to violence, to causing blasphemy. And it's the same sort of persecution. I mean, this is what Jesus says, what you're doing is what killed me. You're a Christ killer. We're all in the position, if we stand with Rome, if we stand with human law, if we stand with human kingdoms, we're all in the position of one of those who put Christ on the cross. Not through some personal sin, but because of our loyalties, our commitments to the kingdoms of this world. And so the light of Christ breaks into this darkness so that Paul's former world is undone. And this is a passage he pictures every Christian as undergoing. This brings us back to Ephesians. Look at Ephesians 1.18. He prays in Ephesians that all may develop a sanctified imagination with eyes which can envision a different world order. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of the inheritance in the saints? How do we defend? What is the case for Christ? How do we do this? Do we argue on the basis of this world's understanding, this world's reason? 
No, I think the vision which interrupts Paul's journey is the vision of a reworked imagination. It's an apocalyptic revelation which interrupts, it deconstructs one world and it constitutes a new world in which our imagination is sanctified, in which our understanding is of a completely different order and it no longer works according to the laws of reason by this world standard or simply the laws of common sense, but rather there is an opening up to a different order and a different understanding outside of the city, over and against the city, in which one world undoes, displaces this world. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.